got to have a plan. I, I, I put something at the end of my emails now that says a goal without a plan is just a wish. So we got to have more than just a wish. We have to be we we have to be working continually to to educate the community, to build stronger coalitions, and to stay on it because these are goals that might be 10 or 20, 30 years into the future, and we can't wait till then to to make the progress. We have to have ongoing support. In October 2018, the City Commission of Gainesville, Florida unanimously adopted a pledge to power city buildings with 100% renewable electricity and to reach net zero carbon emissions community-wide by 2045. Unlike most cities, Gainesville owns its electric and gas utilities, giving it a leg up in making decisions to reach its goal. In September 2020, I was joined by City Commissioner Adrian Hayes Santos and Community Climate Organizer Bob Tansing to discuss the city's goals and its plans to achieve them. I'm John Farrell, Director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is our special Voices of 100 series focused on local leaders and their pursuit of 100% renewable energy. It's all part of Local Energy Rules, a bi-weekly podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. Adrian and Bob, welcome to Local Energy Rules. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, John. So I always like to start off with just kind of the basic question. There are now over 100 cities that have made these kinds of 100% renewable energy commitments like Gainesville has, but they differ in terms of the scope and of the timeline, like whether they count just the municipality or if they're citywide, maybe it's 2030, 2040. Could one of you explain what Gainesville has committed to and by what date? Sure, I can can start off with that. We committed to net zero community-wide greenhouse gas emissions by 2045. So we do own our own utilities, so including that. And also looking at all of our, our vehicles, the city owns too, we own, our, we own our, have our own bus fleet as well. So really just looking at community-wide and how do we get to 100% renewable energy by 2045. And I would just add that some of the different community organizations that were involved in, in getting that resolution passed back in 2018 had different goals and framed in different ways. And so we kind of merged them all into something that uh, everybody was happy with. Yeah, in terms of the, the timeline too, I mean, we're, I think one of the places where we're focusing on right now is the utility, which is our, our main kind of polluter that we have in our city and probably the main polluter in most jurisdictions as well. And we have control of that and allows us to address that, that head on. We're also working on um, electrification of our, of our bus fleet as well. I would love to dive into some of those details a little bit more, in particular with the city-owned municipal electric utility. A lot of the communities that have made this kind of commitment don't own the utility. So there's a lot of, you know, maybe when I'm feeling a little less polite, begging and pleading that goes on or negotiating with the utility. And I did some research on the Gainesville regional utilities. I see that it's ahead of a lot of its Florida peers in terms of how much renewable energy it already has on the system. And in fact, I remember doing some work on Gainesville, I think it was a decade ago, about your feed-in tariff for rooftop solar, which is one of the first in the country modeled on how European countries were getting solar developed. But I noticed it also still supplies nearly two-thirds of its electricity today from coal and gas. And so I was curious about how does that present a challenge in terms of meeting some of the goals you have? I was also just interested, too, and to notice that because we're in the process of doing a report on in-state renewable energy potential across the 50 states, that Florida doesn't have any onshore wind power, which is a really common resource that communities across the country are using as a low-cost way to get to renewables. So tell me a little bit more about maybe that technical challenge that you have, but also about how receptive the utility's been to this commitment and, and to working with you, given its current electricity mix. Yeah, so... Um... 
It's been, I mean, it's in Florida is difficult. We don't have the hydro power. We don't have the wind power and mainly because our, it, it gets windy and then it stops. It stops. I mean, we're, we're called the swamp because it feels like a swamp. A lot of times we just have no wind at all. So it puts us at a, a disadvantage in terms of kind of renewable energy options and where we can kind of go. So we, we did, we, had, we were the first place in the United States to move towards a solar feed-in tariff and that helped get us started there. We also built a, a biomass plant that burns waste wood that would have otherwise gone. We have a lot of tree farms in our area. A lot of there's waste wood that comes from that that would have been either burnt in the field and released carbon emissions that way or left to rot in the fields and let carbon emissions going that way. So we take that and we, we burn it, which gives us a, a base fuel, or a base fuel option for renewable option that is very difficult in Florida. You're right, we do have a coal plant and a gas plant and that is a significant portion, but we're, we're moving in, in good directions. Last year, one of our months in February, we were at 51% of our powers coming from renewable energy. I and mean, last year, yeah, we had about 33%, but moving into next year in our budget, we're expecting to have about 50% of our power only coming from coal and our gas plants. And then we're also on our coal plant, we are, we're actually turning that into a gas, it's kind of a gas plant for something to kind of carry us through. Because we, we have found, I mean, coal is, is the worst out of all of them, and there aren't a lot of renewable options. So we are turning that to a gas plant to give us kind of a little flexibility for a little while. We are also moving towards solar. We recently just signed a power purchase agreement last month, I believe, for 50 megawatts of solar power that also is battery backed up, backed up as well. So that is kind of a, a major thing for us to be able to have that battery backup. And that's the prices are coming down and making that feasible. We don't expect any increase in cost of our utility rates by, by building the solar plant and with the battery backup too. And, and I would add that although Florida has thousand miles of coastline for that coastal wind, that Gainesville is located in Alachua County, which is a landlocked county, an interior inland county, as many counties are in the United States. And so for us to be able to benefit from some of that, we would need to develop a more regional grid so that we could bring in some of our power from, from the beaches. We're kind of right between the Atlantic and the Gulf, so we have some potential there. But the one other thing that I thought was interesting was that down in, in Palm Beach County, where the Gulf Stream streams by all day long, very close to shore, there's a university down there, Florida Atlantic, that's trying to develop a tidal or a current-based Power. So they can get turbines down there in the Gulf Stream. Uh, hopefully one day we'll be able to benefit from some of that. You mentioned that idea of a more regional grid. Does Gainesville have, I mean, I, generally speaking, utilities are interconnected to other utilities within states. Does Gainesville have connections that would allow them, like if that tidal power emerged, would they be able to purchase some of that energy or is there really no way to deliver it to Gainesville? So we're connected as all kind of the utilities in Florida are connected, but we can only get, with our current connections, only get a limited amount of, of power. We are kind of an island that can take care of ourselves. I'm kind of been proud of that, but to be able to get to that, that really 100% renewable in Florida, because of the limited supply we have of real renewable options, I think a regional approach is, is one of the things that, that has to happen. And Bob's right. And it's one of the things that we have been talking with, with some of the utilities that surround us, of increasing kind of the, the connections and how much electricity can pass through those connections, allowing us to kind of purchase power from a further way where renewable options might be more efficient and cost effective. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the relationship between the city government and the utility company, in part because I remember I was 
emailing a variety of communities that had made these commitments, and one of them was Truckee, California. And I said, I had contacted their utility company. I was saying, you know, do you have any kind of plan that you've developed that you've outlined to meet the city's renewable electricity commitment? And he said, well, that's the city government, and we're a separate thing. So we don't have we don't have any plans to meet the city's goal. That's kind of like they're independent. They made their own choices. The way you're talking about it, Adrian, makes it sound like you've got a pretty good relationship with the utility that they're on board with helping to meet this goal. So I'm just curious about how the utility was involved in the, maybe even in the public conversation about making such a commitment and then kind of like what the longer term parts of the plan look like in terms of, you know, scaling back the gas and coal plant and and building more renewables. That's a great question. That's one of the issues that we, continue to have is kind of that fight between our general government side and the utility side and, and then thinking they're they're different and they should be treated differently and that's like different cultures and if, it's one of the things I've tried to push for is having more of an integrative push of this, our general government and our, and our utility are the same they're owned by the residents of our community but that has been a has been a, a struggle I was talking with our, our head of our utility and that's been one of the the major things that he's had to to work on is changing the culture within the utility to be receptive to going to 100% renewable. Because there has, there's been a culture of we're a coal and gas kind of place and that's what we do and we do it well and keep doing that. But changing the culture has been one of the kind of more difficult things on the management side of the utility to make sure that they're they're on board. One of the things too we've, we've done is kind of brought in some people who may not be on kind of the, the old utility kind of mindset, but bringing in new people who kind of have that more open mindset and not have kind of the blinders on for just coal and gas. Luckily, our utility manager has, has been on board and we've had a lot of kind of very public conversations about it. And I also think because of the work that was done in the past decades of doing the feed-in tariff and doing biomass, it kind of is already entrenched in our community of something that we want. And I think that's very important that we have uh, our city commissioners are actually the, making the decisions for our, our municipal utility. They're the management board, I guess. Uh, we have a general manager, but when the manager brings issues before the city commission, that gives the opportunity for citizens to first get notice and then also to organize and to make our voices heard. So it's very important that Gainesville Ridge Utilities is managed by our city commission and that, that rather than these decisions happening in boardrooms, they're happening in this, well, now on Zoom, of course, but before that in the city commission chamber and, and all very out and open in the public and, and uh, the, the community, if they have concerns, can bring it to the commission. Recently, there was an issue that came up that was proposed. And uh, I think in response to community pressure, the idea was dropped and we moved on to something that more people could, could get behind. Bob, I'm kind of interested in hearing you explain that a little bit more and also maybe offer a little contrast that given your kind of extensive history doing community work around climate change, no doubt you're connected with folks in other communities that don't own their utility, maybe served by Florida Power and Light, for example. I'm curious if you could both share a little bit more about this specific example in Gainesville where the public input helped change things, but also maybe how it's different than for folks who are in a city that is served by Florida Power and Light, where the utility is not controlled by the city? Like, how does the advocacy in those places work? And is there an opportunity to influence the decisions that utilities make? Well, maybe I should start off on that one. We had uh, actually a city referendum not too long ago, proposing to take the control away from our city commission and give it to an appointed board. 
our uh, citizens overwhelmingly rejected that idea, thought that the city commission was the place for those kinds of decisions to be made because the interest there is uh, not for stockholders or shareholders or some big investors somewhere else, but the cities, the residents and the, the citizens of Gainesville. There's certainly been some issues in the past that we didn't all agree on, but I think overall the, the, that vote showed that we do have confidence that our elected officials can do the job and, and represent us well in making those decisions. Yeah, in terms of talking to other elected officials in other cities around Florida who do have either FPNL or, or other Duke Energy, it can be very difficult. I think one of the more difficult times is usually during we have hurricanes here and major power disruptions happen. And that is where there's usually when a lot of the fights come up is between the utility not doing what they're supposed to and, and just not getting the power turned on the right way or or how much resiliency they have in their in their power grid that seems to be a continued fight that i see in other communities here in here in gainesville since we own our own utility we can say we want to invest in this much reliability and it's something that the community is a part of and not having to fight so i think that's where it comes into a lot and definitely on the climate side as well but definitely during these emergencies where the the city has direct control over i think one of the most important utilities electric electricity and, and here in Gainesville, we actually are lucky. We also have electricity, water, wastewater, gas, and uh, telecommunication. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I ask if Gainesville has a specific plan in place to reach its 100% goal, what the role of racial equity is in their plans, and what advice Adrian and Bob have for city leaders and organizers in other communities. You're listening to Local Energy Rules from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. One of the things I am interested to hear more about than sort of broadly is there are several 100% cities that we've talked to recently that have actually kind of crafted formal plans to meet their commitment. We talked to folks in Missoula, Montana, just a month or two ago, and they have this thing called an electricity option study. They don't own your, their utility. Same for St. Louis, Missouri. They have a Pathways to 100% Clean Energy report. So a lot of their reporters are kind of like, what do we need the utility to do? But there's also some other interesting things in there as well about transportation and, and such, like you had mentioned. Does Gainesville have a, sort of a similarly like written out action plan for its goal, or is there something like that in process? Or, or how are you going about achieving the goal? Yeah, so it's a, I think it's an ever-evolving plan that we do have, and, and that was somewhat worked on before the, the goal and the, the push from our, our community to, get, to be, have that goal of 100% renewable energy. But 
once that happened, that really kind of set us in motion. Um, then we have crafted plants. It's difficult in Florida. I mean, that's that's one of the big things without that hydro and, and wind energy, it, it's difficult. But we have with solar, with battery, most likely looking at another, our biggest option is kind of that, that base load power and probably looking at maybe another biomass plant to be able to kind of have that, that base power and then looking at, at solar too. We're also looking at the regional approach. I think that's one of the things that is another aspect of, of working with the utilities that are around us and how can we kind of bring renewable energy from, from other places that might have better supply and, and better prices. I think one of the things too is as technology changes, that's something that we're continually looking at as well. And this year we, we, we added 50 megawatts and we're adding 50 megawatts of solar that we designed this year and that will go live next year with battery. And I think that's where probably we're moving towards as well as the solar with battery too. And we should brag a little bit on our county commissioner who's here, city and county commissioners. We recently, just last week, appointed nine new members to a Citizens Climate Advisory Committee, a joint committee advising both city and county commissioners made up of community members with tremendous expertise. We, of course, have the University of Florida here and also some great agricultural interests we were able to, through, through the work of both the city and the county, to get them to establish a committee whose goals are to advise on how to come up with a plan like this and get the word out into the communities and, and make sure that we have representation from the whole community. That's great. I'm really glad you mentioned that. That's been an interesting facet of what we've seen in other cities like St. Louis as well. And it has some bearing on my next question too, which is, as other cities have had these 100% goals, there's often been a focus on equity, such as ensuring energy affordability for low-income residents, or maybe it's ensuring Native American or, or Black populations that have lived near polluting power plants have a chance to benefit more from the transition. Maybe it's like by getting rooftop solar or something like that, or, or having access to energy efficiency. Are there any specific things that Gainesville's doing, either that were part of the broader campaign to set this 100% goal, or in terms of the plan to implement that are targeting equity? The actual the coalition that was first created through our local NAACP, actually, it was the NAACP Environmental and Climate Justice Committee. There should be, if there aren't, there, there sh we should be organizing those committees in every county, every place that has an NAACP branch. Early on, again, back in 2019, we had uh, Jackie Patterson, who's the national director of their Environmental and Climate Justice Committee, to come and be the keynote speaker at an event. So Gainesville, Elytra County has been working all along on those kinds of interests. We're not, we're not just recently to the game. And certainly we looked at that chair of the committee as they made those appointments to the Citizen Climate Advisory Committee, made special point that we need a diverse population. So we do, we have diversity in, in age and race, geographic locations in the county and male and female as well. So we, we our, our, our community leaders are, are very uh, woke in terms of that, that uh, they, they, they feel that that's an important part of their job is to get representation from the entire community. Yeah, that uh, equity is definitely one of our, our top things at the city. It's become our overarching kind of goal and what we look at. And when we do make decisions, equity, we one of the things that's looked at and where we're making kind of policy votes is how does this affect bringing more equity to our community? Because we do, we have significant racial gaps when it comes to education and, and income as well. So it's something that has to be looked at. It can't just be kind of put on the side. We're also looking at it kind of from, from different paths, different ways as well. Actually, this later this week, 
an ordinance that we've been working on for the past couple of years, the rental housing ordinance. And one of the big issues we have in our community is substandard housing, not energy efficient, that's old. A lot of it was kind of old military housing from bases that was brought here after World War II, and it just hasn't really been taken care of. And Florida didn't really have the best kind of energy efficiency rules too for, for a long time. So the, the rental housing ordinance has mandated city inspections that inspect for both health and safety, but also for energy efficiency to make sure that units have uh, attic insulation and other things and weather stripping. Because we found that rental units in our community use a significant more higher utility bills per square foot than someone who owns it. And mainly it's because a lot of landlords just don't invest into the energy efficiency upgrades because they don't have to pay the utility bills. So this helps bring that back and, and it should lower utility bills for our lower income individuals in our community. I'm actually really curious about, given that you own your utility, if you have come across or talked about the pay as you save program for energy efficiency, it was started by some rural electric cooperatives in the Southeast. Probably the most prominent one is Wachita Electric Cooperative, but also Roanoke. But the idea is that you essentially are able to finance energy efficiency improvements through the utility bill. And so the utility will invest its own capital through that to help folks pay for it. And then you just pay it back on the utility bill, but it doesn't rely on loans like so many efficiency programs do. So I, I don't know if you've even come across that, but that's been one really interesting way that tends to have a really powerful, equitable impact in terms of the structure of the program. That's why it's so important to to have these rental ordinances. Energy efficiency in a rental unit where a lot of low-income folks will be living really, really can't make that kind of an improvement to their their unit themselves. It it depends on the landlord. The landlord doesn't pay the electric bill, so those kinds of programs are limited. So our city commission will decide, I believe this week, to to go forward with uh, energy efficiency standard and rental housing. And on the utility, on the, on the energy efficiency program you mentioned, we actually did have something like that back before Great Recession. And it was one of the things that was, we had a, quite a bit of energy efficiency programs and a lot of them, and including this one, were cut out when kind of the Great Recession hit and we were cutting budgets everywhere. But it hasn't, it hasn't come back yet. It's something kind of, I remember walking neighborhoods, knocking on doors, and people actually mentioned that and, and liked that program. But I think it's something to consider. But uh, to Bob's point, it, it, it's only really for homeowners, not for kind of rentals that we have in our community. So I, but I think it's, you need to have a multifaceted approach of things that target each individual person. I'm happy to send you more about it because the program I heard about actually was primarily benefiting rental housing. So they were working with landlords to help them. And there are some tricky business about like who's paying the bills and stuff like that, that they managed to sort out. But it's really, it was very successful and particularly in communities where you you had the electric utility. Of course, the biggest bill is the electric bill because of air conditioning, which I imagine is at least somewhat similar for where you guys are too. It is. Yeah. If you can send that over, that'd be, that'd be great. Cause our, our previous one was just, I mean, I think it was just mainly focused on owner occupant because usually if you're renting a place, you don't want to pay for the fridge or the stove or stuff like that. Since... Nobody washes a, a rental car, right? Isn't yeah, that yeah. The... <laughs> well, I'd like to wrap up by just asking you in both the experience you've got, Bob, and helping to organize around getting this city commitment and then and then Adrian in the in the work that you've done in city government to both adopt this pledge, but then also trying to figure out how to meet it. What advice do you have for other communities in Florida or elsewhere as they as they think about this, about their energy future? How do you 
how do you make this kind of commitment? How do you talk to people about whether or not it's doable and, 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 and identify some of those first steps? Well, certainly reach out to the community, build strong coalitions. We worked quite a while before we got that pledged uh, passed before the, the city commission. And then the important thing is stay on it. One, one of our, our other advocates this morning made that point again, that once, once the goal is in place, and you mentioned it on the call today, that you've got to have a plan. I, I, I put something at the end of my emails now that says that a goal without a plan is just a wish. So we got to have more than just a wish. We have to be, we, we have to be working continually to, to educate the community, to build stronger coalitions, and to stay on it because these are goals that might be 10 or 20, 30 years into the future, and we can't wait till then to, to make the progress. We have to have ongoing support and pressure, if you want to call it pressure. Some, as you said, some, some commissioners don't need to be pressured as much, but some do. And so we need to, we need to stay on it. You can't go and relax and have a celebration and then forget about the campaign. And that campaign is ongoing until the goal is achieved. Bob, just one quick follow-up on that. When there have been elections for the city commission, is this an issue that has been talked about during those elections? I know that that's a, in my experience in Minneapolis, which is where I'm from and where there has been some of that kind of discussion in the past around climate change, that was really important how it was involved in the municipal election conversation. I was just curious if that was part of what was happening in, in the work that you were doing organizing. Well, certainly in the work that we're doing, I mentioned earlier the, uh, the initiative, the referendum to, to try to keep GRU local. And it was, it was all about it then. I'm sure Adrian can talk more about more recent political campaigns, but we certainly do try to bring it up when we have, like, for instance, the League of Women Voters uh, who are on our NAACP coalition. They certainly bring it up in all of their candidate forms and that sort of thing. But uh, I'm sure Adrian could give some firsthand accounts. Yeah, it's been environmentalism. Our community is probably one of the top kind of polling issue that we we have here. So I don't I, I don't know if we've had like someone run specifically on the hundred percent goal, but we definitely have people who who run on like renewable energy. That's something I I ran on is like we need to be focused on renewable energy and climate change too. I think that was the last couple of election cycles we've seen climate change being kind of one of the the main political points in there. And then on the on the other side too, and kind of what can be kind of told to other communities are working on this. I think Bob said it well when he, when he talked about keeping the pressure on. It's not gonna be solved in a year or two years or three years. There's gonna be new commissioners that come on and new activists in the community. And that, that has to have that continued push that, that can't be given in. And then on another front, I think inside kind of city government on kind of the bureaucratic end, you, you have to have buy-in from staff. And that, that has to be there. You, you have to change that, that culture that may be entrenched inside of utility. And that's, I think, if you don't, if you don't have buy-in from staff, stuff doesn't happen. So that, I think, is one of the major kind of hurdles that, that has to be overcome and to make sure that, that you have that from your kind of higher-ups, um, but also going down to lower down in the, in the organization, too, um, are, are, are very important. You don't have to have a, a plan to set that goal. And I think that's one of the main things is setting that goal and getting it out there. And then you can do start doing the hard work of putting together the plan. There's even today, if you're putting together a plan, it's not going to be exactly what's going to get you to that point. It's going to change over time. So I don't think being afraid of, of not knowing how, how you get there before you set that goal. It reminds me of a 
a presentation I did once in Tucson, Arizona, and someone from the electric utility there, which is investor owned, but relatively local in terms of the area it serves. He said, you know, we basically come to, to work each day to do what we did the day before and to do it reliably. And so it really is interesting, that challenge of culture change to help people understand like you're setting out to do something different. So I really appreciate you mentioning that. Well, Adrian and Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to share how Gainesville has made this 100% commitment and you're struggling through it like so many other folks, but doing good work. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our Voices of 100% podcast series with Gainesville City Commissioner Adrian Hayes-Santos and community climate organizer Bob Tansing, recorded in September 2020. On the show page, look for links to the Gainesville Utilities Energy Mix and more about the pay-as-you-save inclusive energy financing model we discussed. To learn about other cities pursuing 100% renewable energy, check out over a dozen additional Voices of 100% interviews on the Local Energy Rules podcast, including leaders in Madison, Wisconsin, Cleveland, Ohio, or even Abita Springs, Louisiana. Look up the Sierra Club's Ready for 100 campaign page to see more cities and their clean energy goals. Back on the website of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, you can also find the entire list of 100% cities on our community power map and click through an interactive community power toolkit for stories on how cities have advanced toward their goal. Local Energy Rules is produced by myself and Maria McCoy, with editing provided by audio engineer Drew Birschbach. Tune back into Local Energy Rules every two weeks to hear more powerful stories of communities taking on concentrated power to transform the energy system. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening. <laughs>